0: week by week, is that you would get a fresh vision of Jesus, that maybe you would see Jesus in a way you've never seen him before, maybe your heart hopefully would be drawn to him and his glory and his grace and his sweetness. And tonight, what I want to do is look at John 3, verses 1 to 15, and uh, let me read the passage for us, just send your hand out, and then I'm going to jump in. I'm reading from the ESV. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi... We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, which is a way of Jesus saying, listen, this is serious. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Uh, Jesus, you uh, love us enough to have hard conversations with us. And you love us enough uh, to humble us where we need to be humbled. Uh, You love us enough to disturb peace where it is false peace. You love us enough to say hard things. And I pray tonight that you would, as we think about this conversation you have with Nicodemus, is from all appearances, very, very good man, religious man, um, that we could receive what you're saying to him. That no matter how good we may think we are, We're still in need of your grace, and we're still in need of being made new. And I pray, Lord, that you would be gracious to speak and meet us here tonight. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, Many, many years ago, there was a farmer who grew carrots. And he had a small garden, and in that garden he grew the biggest carrot he had ever grown in his whole life. And he thought, this was many, many years ago, so he thought, "What what should I do with this giant carrot? So he thought to himself, he thought about it, and he thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take it to the castle, and I'm going to give it to the king. And so the, carrot, uh, he, the farmer uh, marches the carrot up, and, and he goes before the king, and he says, Dear king, you have been nothing but good and kind to me my whole life, and me and my family, you've been nothing but benevolent. I want you to receive this, this, this huge, beautiful carrot from my garden, because you've loved us so well. And the king was a little bit taken aback, and, and he really was moved by this gift. And he said, it's, he said uh, thank you so much, farmer. And I've been thinking, there's actually, I have a couple of acres of land near your little garden. And I've actually been trying to figure out what I should do with them. And because you've given me this kind of gift, I want to now give you these hundreds of acres of land. I want you to expand your garden. I want you to grow many, 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 many more fine carrots. Stick with me. We're going somewhere. A guard at the court is watching this whole thing. And he thinks, if you get hundreds of acres of land for a carrot, what would you get for a horse? I I raise horses. I'm going to bring a horse tomorrow. And so the guard from the court brings a horse before the king the next day and says, dear king, you've been nothing but good to my family. Uh, You've been kind and benevolent. I want to give you the finest horse from my stable. And the king said, thank you. And he took the horse and he began to walk away. And the guard stopped him and said, Wait, uh, isn't there something you might like to give me in return? And the king said, Ah, I see what's happening. You thought if I gave hundreds of acres of land for a carrot, how much more would I give for a horse? He said, Do you want to know the difference between you and the farmer? The farmer was giving me the carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. The farmer loved me and gave me out of his gratitude and generosity. You only loved yourself in giving me the worst. Charles Spurgeon used that illustration to say this. There's a profound difference between what we're going to call self-righteousness tonight. There's a way of loving and doing Christianity that has nothing to do with love for Jesus. It's all selfishly, proudly motivated. And the gospel. Loving God for God, being broken about your sin, knowing your need for salvation, and because of that brokenness and because of him meeting you with his grace, you actually love him and you actually love Jesus. And what I want you to see is Nicodemus is one who comes before Jesus in this passage much more in self-righteousness. He doesn't know anything yet of the love of Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, listen, listen Nicodemus, your problem is you, think, you actually think you have it all together. And because of that you don't you can't you can't even see, not much much less enter into my kingdom, because only those who know they don't have it all together. Only those who know their deep deep need for a savior can enter into my kingdom. And so he says, Nicodemus, you have to be made new. You have to be made new from the inside out. You have to be born again. So three things I want to look at tonight briefly from John 3, thinking about this idea of we all need to be made new, that none of us is beyond the need of God's grace. The fascinating thing about John's gospel is we're going to look at this conversation with Nicodemus, and in, in a few weeks we're going to look at the, this different, very different conversation with the Samaritan woman. They're very, very different characters. Nicodemus would be, grew up in church his whole life. He would be like voted youth group leader of the year. He would be like the kind of person that you would be in awe of a little bit because he's such a super Christian. And this Samaritan woman is going to be absolutely different. She's going to have moved through five marriages. She's going to be sort of full of sexual brokenness. And Jesus is saying something very profound. He's saying, you're never too good to be beyond the need of God's grace, and you're never too bad to be beyond the reach of God's grace. But tonight, I want to think about this idea of you need to be made new. And three things I want you to see. I want you to see our need for the new birth, I want you to see the mystery of the new birth, and I want you to see the results of the new birth. Now, before I do that, I want to sort of enter into this idea of being born again. Because I know for some of you that that phrase has baggage. So for some of you that that phrase has very southern Bible belty, Fox News watching, tied to to a particular political party kind of baggage. And I want you to see that Jesus, that's not how Jesus means it. Like, what Jesus is saying is maybe not the way you've heard it if you've heard it in those kinds of places. You know, I had a student one time at Georgia Southern whose dad literally had a phrase he wanted his son to know. He'd grown up in a, in a, very, a very, very fundamentalist Southern at his church. And the phrase was simply this, I don't uh, smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. And it was kind of like, that's just sort of a lame rhyme in and of itself. But the point was that that was his understanding of what Christianity was. And I'm, I'm trying to see that's not what a born-again means when Jesus is saying it. The other thing it doesn't mean is maybe you grew up in a very feelings-oriented youth group, and it sort of conjures for you, maybe you gave your life to Jesus like 20 times, and you never felt it enough. And I want, you to, sort of, I want to unpack that, because when we talk about the new birth, we're actually talking much, much, much less about an experience and much, much more about what happens when it happens. It's much, much, much less about feelings, And it's much, much, much more about love for Jesus that's genuine and sincere. But what Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus, you don't see your need for this. Why? Because Nicodemus, if if we were to meet him, he's sort of the impeccable southern gentleman in some ways. He's probably polished in his appearance. He definitely has an academic pedigree that's impressive. He would be something like a chair of some department in, in in the finer southeast schools. He also has an impeccable spiritual record. He is the lead teacher of Israel, which is a pretty big deal because that means people look to him. The kind of, he's the kind of person that kids in their neighborhood look up to him and want to be like. He's the kind of person that people are a little bit in awe of. He's the kind of person that maybe intimidates you just a little bit by their goodness. He's the kind of person that maybe is in the cover of time for Man of the Year. He's the kind of person that maybe even gets in Garden and Gun because maybe he's a little cool and hip. I don't know, but this is the kind of person we're talking about. Someone that you and I would think, oh, of course. Of course they're in the kingdom, of course they belong. Of course they're a believer. And Jesus says, nope. Actually, no. Um, He's saying, no one can become a believer until they experience what he calls being born again. Now, what's interesting is john that phrase, John loves, we're going to look at the whole semester, John loves what we call double entendres for my English people, or for those who paid attention a little bit in English. And he loves to, to say really phrases that can go two ways. And this phrase actually can be translated two ways. It can be translated born again, or it can be translated born from above. And his idea is simply this, that you and I, our deep, deep need, because we live and have been born into a broken world and, and we're born, like David said, born and son, you and I have this deep need to be made new from the inside out and that we can't do it ourselves. Any more than you, any, any more than you and I could birth ourselves, That the Lord has to come and do a work in us that makes us new from the inside out. And Jesus, it's actually this this idea that actually, if you go back to Ezekiel, Ezekiel pictured it in two pretty pretty profound images, this idea that God must do something inside of us to make us new, to make us a new person, to restore us to what we should be. Ezekiel had two ideas that were really, two images that were really powerful. One was bones laying in the dust, just a bunch of dry bones. And God must come and breathe into those bones. And when God breathes into the bones, they start filling up with flesh and muscle and they begin to dance. The other image Ezekiel gives is the idea of God doing a surgery where he removes a heart of stone from a man. And he, move, he removes a heart of stone and he places in his chest a beating, alive heart of flesh. And this is what Jesus is building on. Paul's going to take it further in Ephesians 2 and he's going to say, listen, what you and I are like are, we're actually walking around, we seem alive, but Paul is saying we're actually dead inside. Paul in Ephesians 2 says that we're all dead in our sins, and and the image that Paul is kind of giving is one that, I don't know if you're a walking dead person or not, I am a walking dead person, my wife is not, because zombies and the sort of goriness of the show freaks her out, but what do you do with zombies? Like, how do you make zombies human again? And I love this idea of, like, imagine we took a zombie and we're like, we want you to be human again, friend. So let's go to Urban Outfitters and get you a new outfit, because, like, what you're wearing is just not working. And um, let's go to a salon and get you, like, your hair sort of, you know, freshened up. And let's go, maybe, like, your nails, you could use a petty and a mani. And, like, you and I, like, zombie, that's not how zombies become human again. They need a deep, deep work, some sort of something healing to come from inside to make them human again. And that's what Jesus is saying. But Nicodemus can't receive it. Nicodemus cannot receive this word. Why? Because he understands what Jesus is saying. That means everything I've done, my record, my resume is for, is for naught. It means nothing. Because the only fitness, we sing it in REF all the time, because the only fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And that means there's nothing I can bring to God. But my need for salvation. There's nothing I can bring to him but my sins that need to be forgiven. This is why, I don't know if you're a TV person, but this is why I think Satan loved Seventh Heaven more than Breaking Bad. Seventh Heaven, if you remember that show, is a WB show. Eric Camden's the pastor. And it's this very, the idea of the show is very, very, like, just nice little neat moral principles packed into this very no cussing, nothing sexual, this very, like, tame and, like, very safe show Like, there's one episode, if you ever know the show at all, where the whole episode is about Reverend Camden helping Ruthie, his daughter, break her gum addiction, and it's kind of like, who, who is watching that thinking, this is what I needed tonight? I needed a fresh word that my gum addiction could be broken. And there's a sense in which, when you look at a show like that, versus a show like Breaking Bad, where you watch a man, Walter White, who starts out as a decent human being and is transformed into a villain, what... In a sense, he's put in the right circumstances, and his heart goes where it would go when we're in certain circumstances. And the reason I think Satan likes 7th Heaven more is this idea of niceness, what C.S. Lewis called the difference between being nice and being made new. This idea of being moral, being very, very good, versus knowing your sin, knowing your pride, knowing your need for Jesus. There was a pastor named Donald Gray Barnhouse who was preaching through Romans, and he got to that Romans 3 passage where it says, no man is good, not one, none is righteous. And he was envisioning what would it look like if Satan took over a city. And he actually, it's pretty interesting. He, he envisions what he was preaching at Philadelphia at the time. He says, here's what I think it would look like if Satan were to take over a city. And here's what he says in your handout. He says, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. There's a way of doing Christianity that totally misses Jesus. This is, I'm a huge barbecue person. And, like, I've done this barbecue tour since before I got married where I literally go. I have this Southern Living article where I go to all the small spots in South Carolina trying the best barbecue I can find. And I can tell you the worst kind of barbecue place. It's the kind that makes it all about the sides, but misses, like, the foundation of the meat. The, like, Columbia Barbecue, they're going to just push back a little bit. I grew up in Sumter. There's no good Columbia Barbecue for this reason. is because, like, they, they, the, the meat is not, like, if you've been to Sweatman's or if you've been to Scott's near Myrtle Beach or if you've been even to McCabe's and Manning. Like, the, the meat is what, and there's a way of doing Christianity that makes it about the side, not the meat that totally misses jesus that totally misses and that's what satan thrives on and that's what nicodemus can't see and jesus is saying for you to even enter much less see the kingdom you have to understand that this is about me it's not about your goodness it's not about adding something it's about totally giving all that up and finding everything you need in me which leads me second to this idea of the mystery of it the mystery of the new birth and the mystery is pretty interesting because I think Jesus says, listen, because the next natural question for us is how, do you, how does one become born again? How does one become born and made anew? And this is where Jesus says this whole thing is like a mystery. It's like the wind. You don't know where the wind comes from. All you know that, that it has come. Like I can remember one time we lived in Statesboro, Georgia. And there was this huge storm, but we, we were asleep, we missed it, but all I knew the wind had blown because there was a branch laying in my yard. And Jesus is saying that's part of how the new birth works. You don't it's a mystery how it comes, when it comes, where it comes. But all you can judge it by is what it brings. And what it brings is a life turned upside down. What it brings is a life that's begun to be transformed. This is why some of you when you think about when you think for a second about your, your moment of conversion, or when you think maybe you became a Christian if, if that's happened for you yet. And what's interesting is is usually, probably in this room, if we were to kind of do a thing where I was like, come up and share your testimony, there would be a wide variety of testimonies. Like, some of you would be able to say, yes, day and time, this is when I think I became a Christian. And I have a testimony that's kind of more like that. Like, I can remember pretty much where I was and a pretty sudden change where Scripture all of a sudden became, like, way alive to me and prayer actually, like, way changed the way that I even understood prayer. But a lot of us could say, I don't really know. Like, I'm not exactly sure when it happened. All I know is that now I have this love for Jesus, and I know I'm a sinner, and he's everything that I need as a Savior. But you're not exactly sure. It's more happened maybe gradually, or maybe it happened more kind of, it's a little bit of a mystery to you. And I think N.T. Wright gives the best illustration for me in this, where he he talks about, just imagine the way, if you're like me, you wake up to an alarm clock. And he says there are two different ways to wake up to an alarm clock. One is, it rings, you're up. In the shower, and it's like very like, yes, I am supposed to do this. Let's, let's let's do this morning. And then for others of us, maybe if you're more like me, you just, you sort of groggily, foggily hit snooze once, and then maybe twice, three, and then you then you maybe get ashamed at how many times you hit snooze. And then at some point you sort of foggily make yourself make your way to the shower and you do your shower thing or bath if you're depressed, and I hear you. And you go about your day, and here's what he says. It doesn't matter how you woke up. What matters is that you're awake. It doesn't matter if it happens suddenly or if it happens in stages. What matters is that you're awake. And that's exactly what Jesus says. It's this mysterious sometimes how it happens. But here's what I want you to see. To, to focus on the, the moment or season or time of your conversion is to miss the, this. That the miracle is that you are a Christian. Like This is actually the litmus test for how you know you're a Christian. Is this a miracle to you that you are a Christian? That if God could save you, he could save anybody. And if you don't feel that, if you don't have that sense, Jesus, what Jesus is saying here, you maybe need to wrestle with it as we leave here. I love the way that Richie Sessions, he's a pastor in Memphis, he has this great illustration where he talks about, uh, I don't know what your school experience was like growing up, but my school, especially in PE in middle school, we played a lot of pickup basketball and uh, so the pickup basketball, the way it worked in my school, I assume if you've had this experience, if you've ever been picked for a team, where you know the, the coach, the PE coach, would who wore in this incredible sweatsuit outfit all the time in white kids. That's all I really remember. And she picked two of us to then pick teams. And so this is the way it happened. If you've ever experienced this, you know there are only two kinds of picks when the captains are picking. There are the picks that will make your and help your team win. And there are what we call mercy picks. Where you're like, oh, do I have to have to be on my team? The mercy pick, maybe you were a mercy pick. A mercy pick is someone who is in, the, in basketball is going to double dribble. They're going to score the wrong goal at some point. A mercy pick is, <laughs> if you get a lucky mercy pick, they'll hustle. But even in their hustle, they're going to foul a lot. And what Richie says is genius. Is that in Christianity, there are only mercy picks. All of us are mercy picks. And Nicodemus's problem, which is a lot of your problems, especially freshmen, is you still think you can bring something to the team. You still think you're a, kind of a first-rounder, and you're a little offended I didn't get picked first. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, don't you understand there's no such thing? There, there are only mercy picks when it comes to my kingdom. There are only those who bring nothing but their sins to the table. And that leads us, lastly, to the results of the new birth. So how do you kind of know it's happened? Um, and I think this is where Nicodemus is so close and yet so far. He's so close because he sees two true things about Jesus. And the one hand, he sees, he calls him good teacher. He, he knows that Jesus is a great teacher. In other words, he knows that we should listen to Jesus. That Jesus, when it came to, to, to having insight on how life should be lived, Jesus had a lot of good things to say. And he, Nicodemus, he gets that, that Jesus is a teacher we should listen to. And the other thing he gets about Jesus that's right is that Jesus is a miracle worker. That Jesus has—he's probably seen some of the results. That Jesus, in this day and time, has already changed water into wine. He's probably healed some. He's healed some people. Some people that are dying or sick. He's going to raise people from the dead. And Nicodemus is coming to Jesus, saying, "You're this incredible teacher, and you're a powerful miracle worker. But there's one thing that Nicodemus doesn't see: Jesus as. He doesn't see him as a savior. He doesn't see him as the one who's going to go to die the death that he deserved to die and live the life that he couldn't live. And this is why Jesus, if you are reading the story, Jesus does this weird thing where he starts talking about the story about Moses and a snake in the desert. And he's talking about a story from Numbers 21. And the story is simply this. God's people are in the desert and these snakes start kind of just are in their midst and biting them and, and really causing death and really causing poison. And people are dying from these snake bites. So God tells me this, I want you to do something. I want you to take this bronze serpent, I want you to put it in a pole, and I want you to lift that pole up. And I want you to tell people that any time anytime they're bitten by a snake, all they need to do to be healed is to look at this bronze serpent raised in a pole, and they will immediately be healed. That's all they need to do. They're, they're, as soon as they're bitten, tell them to look to the bronze serpent and be healed. And Jesus says, that's exactly what I'm going to do on the cross. Is this, it's it's kind of is Jesus like are we wicked all of a sudden like why is Jesus comparing himself to a bronze serpent? It's fascinating. Serpents in the Bible always mean one thing: it's the curse and the poison of sin. If you think back to the garden, how does sin even come into the world? It's through the voice, the tempting voice and bite, if you will, of a serpent. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, "I'm going to become a curse." I'm going to actually take the curse of sin, I'm going to take the poison of sin in your life, and I'm going to take it to myself, that you might know the blessing of healing, that you might know the blessing of grace, that you might know the blessing of forgiving, redeeming, transforming love. It's like the scene in True Grit, if you're a True Grit person, where Maddie's fallen into the snake pit, she's been bitten And then Richard does that beautiful thing where he he gets as much poison as he can and he rushes her as fast as he can to get her the help that she needs and he dies along the way. He takes the poison. He dies from the snake bite that she might live, that she might be healthy, that she might be healed. And that's why Jesus is saying, I'm going to become the curse. But Nicodemus, here's the problem. For that to be beautiful to you, you have to see yourself as accursed. For this to change your life, you have to see yourself as someone who is poisoned by sin. And he doesn't yet. There's a, you know, when we think about this idea of, so what it means is, basically the way you become a Christian is to admit your need. The way you become a Christian, Jesus is saying, is, is like becoming a baby. It's like saying, I can do nothing. Please. Crying out for help. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've had four, I've birthed four kids. <laughs> I've birthed four kids. I've helped make four kids, which is another story. Um, I wish I could rewind that. Um, When a child is born into the world, they're absolutely helpless. There's nothing they can do. They are completely dependent upon their parents. They are completely dependent upon being helped, being taken care of. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, don't you see, that's what it means to know me. That's what it means to see and enter into the kingdom. This means, so what you have to understand is this means the Christian life. I want you to understand this. Some of you are here, you've been born again, you can tell me your story. Praise God. But I want you to see that the growth in the Christian life. It's like Brad Brad Pitt and uh, Benjamin Button. You know, Curious Case Benjamin Button, where as he ages, he gets younger and younger and younger, and he gets more and more and more helpless, and he gets more and more and more needy until he's a little baby that can't do anything. And that's the Christian life. Growth in the Christian life is knowing more and more and more and more your need for Jesus, which makes you love Jesus more and more and more and more. Until you can say with John Newton, the, the, you know, the, who wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton at the end of his life, he's on his deathbed. He says, I have forgotten everything, but two things I remember. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And my question for you tonight is, can you say that with sincerity? Can you say those two things? That's all you know, that, that I am a great sinner, Christ is a great Savior. I want to kind of close with two applications, thinking about what does this mean for your life. Two things. If you're worried right now, Like, if you're worried, have I I experienced this new birth? That's probably a good sign. It's probably a good sign that you have. And I want to encourage some of you, some of you are here and maybe wrestling with whether or not you're a Christian is a big deal for you and it's caused you a lot of pain and anxiety. I've had friends, who that's been their story. And what I want to assure you tonight is the way you became a Christian was not looking within. It was by looking without. There's this old, old Puritan named Robert Murray McShaney said, for every one look you take at yourself, take ten looks to Christ. And my question simply for you to rest your heart tonight is simply this: Is Jesus beautiful to you? Do you believe him? Do you love him? Is imperfectly? Listen, your love compared to Jesus' love for you is always going to be imperfect. But the question is not: Is it is it good enough? The question is: Do you love him? Is he beautiful and believable to you? Here's the second one: If you're listening, and you're like, oh, what, "Like, why is he talking about this?" Of course, I'm a Christian. Why would I be here? I want you to worry just a little bit, just tonight and say, do I love Jesus? Or am I the self-righteous person who's doing Christian things in the name of myself? Because I want to get something from God. I want him to give me a husband. I want him to give me like this impressive resume that's going to lead me to this cool career path and I'm going to, be, people are going to, I'm going to walk up in Kanye style and people are going to be in awe of me. And if that's where you are I don't know. Do you love Jesus? Or do you love yourself? Are you the farmer? Or are you the guard? The beautiful thing in this story is there's a sequel. Nicodemus shows up two places in John. This place, he has this hard conversation with Jesus. And the second place is actually in John 19. And it's beautiful. Because Jesus has died and Pilate has taken his body. And Nicodemus comes with Joseph of Arimathea to to get it. And he brings myrrh and he brings frankincense just so he can perfume Jesus' body. And what I love about that is somewhere along the way after this conversation, Nicodemus had this new birth. Nicodemus was made new such that Jesus became beautiful to him. Jesus became sweet to him. Jesus became everything to him. And my question is, is he those things to you? Let's pray. Jesus, uh, apart from your work in our lives, we are hopeless and helpless. And I pray that you would, even tonight, meet us in the, our broken places. Meet us in the places where we are proud and don't see it. Meet us in the places where we are full of lust and can't admit it. Meet us in the places where we are so arrogant and about ourselves that everyone around us can see it, but we can't. And you can see it. And you know our need to be made new. You know, Lord, that our love for you is just frail. But yet, Lord, I pray that you would give us this new birth that brings about... An ever deepening, genuine, sincere love for you. I pray these things for Christ in your name. Amen.